All right, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, the end of Matthew's gospel. So I want to invite you to turn over there. So I'm watching, see who's opening up their Bibles, turning on their devices. We're going to start with a reading here in just a second. And as you're turning over to Matthew 28, I want to remind you what you see on the screen, uh, this D-squared sermon series that we've been in the last few weeks. Uh, What we're talking about is becoming a devoted follower of Jesus. This journey that we're on of discipleship, if you are a disciple of Jesus, becoming fully devoted, but also being a disciple who makes disciples. And when it comes to making disciples or just making that statement, make disciples, Matthew chapter 28, known as the Great Commission, that's usually what comes to mind. So let me start by just reading initially, and we're going to spend our whole time in this text today, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make converts of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to agree with all the right doctrines. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 18-20. If you're following along, did anything sound a little off to you from my reading? Anybody paying attention? This is a test to see if you turned over and you're following along because I intentionally misread a few words, right? Anybody catch up on that? Anybody notice? All right. Jesus doesn't say go and make converts. He says go and make disciples. And he doesn't say teach them to agree with all the right doctrines. He says teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So let's define what a convert is. I don't know how well you can see it on the screen up there, but a convert is somebody who has uh, been persuaded to change his or her religious faith or beliefs. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, if somebody is not a Christian, whether you're not religious or you belong to another religion, we would want you to become a Christian. We would want you to convert. The problem with this word, convert, is within American church, I believe for a long time now, we have focused way more on making converts than we have disciples of Jesus. And because of that, we've experienced what I called a few weeks ago, what we talked about, fast food mentality towards our faith. Like, give me what I want, I pay for a service, and I expect it quickly, and if I don't like it, I'll send it back. Or another way of looking at it is this consumeristic mentality that's all me-focused. Like, what do I get out of this? What is this church offering for me? Or in our relationship with Christ or a church, we have this client-based relationship. So when we focus only on making converts, that's kind of what we get. Uh, The late Dallas Willard, a great writer and author, once coined this phrase, and maybe you've heard me share it before, vampire Christians. And he wrote that vampire Christians are those who want Jesus for his blood, who want Jesus for his salvation that he offers, but they don't really want Jesus for his words. That's what a vampire Christian is, according to Dallas Willard. Somebody who is really interested in having their sins forgiven, but they're not really interested in being fully committed to Jesus. So on the contrary to maybe what a convert is, just stopping short there, or on the contrary to what a vampire Christian is, is what C.S. Lewis once wrote about the Great Commission about making disciples is everybody needs to become a little Christ. 
Basically, that's what our churches should be filled with are people who are on this journey of becoming like Jesus Christ, and we're a little Christ. So a few weeks ago, this is a picture of my five-year-old son, and this was from Easter Sunday. Uh, That week leading up to Easter, I don't know where he got this idea from, but he saw this suit and tie at Target, and he really wanted it. And usually... Uh, All he wants to do is wear shorts and a t-shirt on Sunday morning, so it's kind of a a struggle. So the fact that he wanted to wear a suit and tie, we were like, yeah, we'll buy this little suit for him, and he can wear it. But all week, as he he tried it on a few times, we took pictures. This was from Easter Sunday morning, but he was so excited about wearing that suit because he kept saying, Dad, I'm going to look like you. Yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be a little you. Even that morning, he said, look, I'm a little you. In fact, I I told him I had to break it to him. I'm not going to wear a tie, son. Like, i got to be able to breathe. But for the most part, we'll look the same. And when you go back to what C.S. Lewis said, that in the Great Commission, we're all to become a little Christ. I think about what my son said, I want to be a little you. And essentially, that's the job of the church, is we are trying to help each other become a little Christ, to become just like Jesus. And And that's not an easy thing to do, but this is such an important part of who we are and our identity. So this Great Commission passage, and and I do want to read it the right way this time. I hope you realize by now I did intentionally misread a few words, right? Did you pick up on that? Well, the first time I read it. So we're going to read, and we're going to walk through verses 16 through 20 of Matthew chapter 28, and I'll point out from the beginning, or maybe I'll just phrase it as a question. How many of you have ever been on a mission trip and you were trying to raise money or promote the trip, and you used Matthew 28 as the backbone of your mission. Anybody? Be honest. Okay. Yeah, Jeff had. Thank you, Jeff. At least one person's honest. I would say growing up, every time I heard a missions report or somebody was going on a mission trip, Matthew 28, that's like, hey, this is what we're going to do, the Great Commission. I've used this passage before. Apparently, Jeff and I are the only ones that have done that, but I sure next time you go on a mission trip, use Matthew 28, okay? I'll give you some advice. But most of the time when we talk about Matthew 28, we talk about the Great Commission, we just kind of allude to it. So I want to spend a few minutes going through this great passage at the end of the Gospel of Matthew and just kind of slow down and walk through it for a moment and see if maybe God has something to say to you, to myself, to our church in fresh ways. So It starts with this in verse 16. Matthew sets the story. He says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So there's eleven disciples. Sounds different, right? We're used to hearing what number? Twelve. So by this time, Judas has betrayed Jesus, and unfortunately, Judas took his own life. So now there's eleven. Now, some believe that Matthew mentions the 11 specifically, but there could be way more than that that meet Jesus on this mountain. According to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, the resurrected Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Well, Matthew doesn't give us those details. He just says the 11. And Jesus directed them to go to this mountain. And I assume that if Jesus tells you to meet him somewhere, you should go. They go to the mountain. There's, the mountain is an important place, an important scene throughout the Bible, especially in Jesus' ministry, and it's still important for us today. Uh, We love mountaintop experiences. 
Have you ever been to a church camp or a mission trip or whatever it may be where you kind of get out of the norm, get out of your comfort zone, and, and you're pushed and you're stretched a little bit, and you experience God in these powerful ways through other people, and we, we call them mountaintop experiences. We love those, and we need those every once in a while to remind us of what's most important, but life is not meant to be lived on top of the mountain. Life cannot be sustained there, so most of life is lived in the valley, in the trenches, But Jesus takes these 11 disciples up on the mountain one last time before he ascends. There's their meeting place. They go to the mountain, and they meet. And then we get this strange verse in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Have you ever caught that before? I like the fact that Matthew includes this little detail, and he's not hiding anything. He's not trying to cover it up. What he's telling us is, They are meeting the resurrected Jesus, and there is worship that's taking place, but there's also some doubt. He doesn't tell us who is doubting. He doesn't tell us what they are doubting or why they are doubting. He doesn't give us any details. He just says there's a little bit of doubt mixed in. And I felt the need to really point that out today because if you're in the audience right now, if you're watching on YouTube and and maybe you're doing this out of habit, maybe you're here because your family wants you here, or maybe you're here because your spouse wants you here, and And maybe there's some doubt in your own heart. Maybe it's a secret doubt that you haven't shared with anybody because you're not sure how they would respond. If you are struggling with doubt, well, maybe I can encourage you for a moment because you're not alone. Obviously, Matthew shares this with us. The disciples were doubting, and they were looking at the resurrected Jesus. You know, sometimes you're going to wrestle and struggle with doubt And that's okay. Keep wrestling. Don't give up because you get in a bad place when you become complacent. But just struggling with doubt doesn't mean it's the end of your story. Keep wrestling. They go to this mountain, and Matthew says they they meet Jesus there. There's some worship taking place. There's some doubt taking place. And then Jesus comes to them, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, if you've ever read this great commission before, you may think, yeah, of course. Jesus has all authority. We know that. But place yourself in their shoes and the magnitude of this story. If you're looking at all of the Gospel of Matthew, you could go back to Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is fasting for 40 days. And he's hungry. And the devil shows up to tempt Jesus. And there's three main temptations. And one of the temptations is the devil says to Jesus, if you just worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. We know Satan is the father of lies, and he's making false promises to Jesus, and he's saying, shortcut it. Go the cheap and the easy route, the quick fix, and I'll give you all the authority. And Jesus denies that, obviously. And now, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is able to confidently say, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, and now God has given him all authority through the right path, the right way is the crucified and the risen one, not the cheap and easy way that Satan promised him. So all the authority, he's gone through death, and out the other side, he's the resurrected Jesus, he's meeting him on this mountain, and then we get into this commission in verse 19, and he says, therefore, and everybody just say that next word with me, so I know you're with me, therefore what? Go. Go, two letters, simple word, but it's such an important word throughout the Bible. 
You go back to Genesis 12, and you see God calls Abram, and he says, go. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, even the New Testament, we see that God is a sending God. God is a God of go. He tells his people to go, and he doesn't always give them the details of what's going to happen or where they're going exactly, but he still sends them anyways. And if God tells you to go, you know that God is up to something. And we see these great men and women of faith throughout Scripture who respond to God's call to go. God is a sending God, a God of mission. And when we read this, go, we usually think of cross-cultural missions. We think of missionaries who go to Africa or South America or Asia or go all over the world. But one way of looking at it, as one translator pointed out, is you could translate it this way, while you were going. While you were going, make disciples. So yes, they're kind of one and the same, but I like what that says there, while you are going, because to me that is reminding all of us that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are also a disciple maker. This commission applies to you. You don't always have to go to some other country or get in a plane and fly somewhere while you're going. At work, at school, your extracurricular activities, the people you're involved in, that you know, your acquaintances, whoever it may be, while you go, you are called to make disciples. So therefore, go make disciples. This word disciple is rooted in two words. One is a Hebrew word, Talmudim, and I'm probably not pronouncing that right. And then the, the Greek word, I worked all day yesterday on my pronunciation of this Greek word, uh, and I'm, you see it up there. I'm not even going to try it. I, I'll try it on the second service. But the Greek word, the Hebrew word, uh, both mean the same thing, a student or a learner, somebody who is a disciple to a rabbi, who has attached themselves to a rabbi to learn from that rabbi, to be like that rabbi. That's what it means. And, and what Jesus has done with these 11 guys originally 12, but now that Judas is gone, is he has spent over three years with them, teaching them, traveling with them, training them, and even occasionally sending them off on their own little mission journeys and bringing them back. So Jesus has discipled them for several years, and now he's telling them to go and multiply. Just like I have discipled you, you go and make disciples of others. Go spread this thing. And he tells them to go to all nations, which is a great reminder. It's not just for the lost sheep of Israel, not just for the Jewish people, but all nations, all cultures, all languages, all races. The gospel message, the message of Jesus Christ, the invitation to be a follower of Jesus is for all people. And I'll give you a little side note. One thing that I think is interesting is that we live at a time and a place in this country even in this state, where we literally have most all nations who have come to us. We have people from all over the world that live all over the state of Texas, and sometimes I wonder if we're actually paying attention to the mission field that's even around us. God provides a way. Some people are paying attention to that, but I wonder what it would mean for us to pay a little bit more attention to that. So go make disciples of all nations And then we get to the baptizing part, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The background picture up there is a picture I took about 10 years ago when we were on a trip to Honduras. A lady wanted to be baptized, and they went out 
just right outside of the little hut that she was living in and was baptized in this water trough. And I've seen people who become followers of Jesus, baptized into Christ all over the world, here in Africa and Honduras and all over the place. This invitation is literally for all nations, for everyone. And the interesting thing about the way that Jesus shares this and the way that Matthew writes it is baptism in the name of the, well, I put up this word up there, Trinity, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, probably the only place in the New Testament and early Christian literature where all three, the Godhead, three in one, three persons in one, Father, Son, and Spirit are mentioned. This is why, if you notice a baptism, we say, right before we baptize somebody, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A Thursday morning, I was taking my son to a class that he goes to at White Oak. Uh, he goes every Tuesday, Thursday morning. And so it was Thursday morning. We had just been at this family worship class to the church on Wednesday night, so maybe it was. this is why it was fresh on his mind, but it's a short four-minute drive. And we get in the car, we're driving, and he just randomly says, Dad, what's the difference between God and Jesus? Like, How do you explain that to a five-year-old? So I did the only thing I knew to do as a good dad and a good preacher, and I gave him a quick two-minute two synopsis of the doctrine of the Trinity. And I realized I'm talking to a five-year-old, and when I finished, I said, does that make sense to you? And he sat there for a second, and he said, yeah, I think I got it. So a five-year-old is claiming that he, he's got it, he's grasped it. Well, I don't think that that's fully true. I've done some lessons on Trinitarian theology, and there's a mystery to it. But what Jesus is doing is you think back to his baptism. When Jesus was baptized by John, you have the Father in heaven saying, this is my, my son with whom I am well pleased, and you have the Spirit uh, descending on him like a dove all three together in one in Jesus' baptism, and now he's saying, you go do the same. You go baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And baptism is the beginning of the journey. Baptism is important. The apostles go on to teach that in baptism you're forgiven of your sins, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing that we get to communion with God in that way and join Him in the death and burial and resurrection but I should point out, because we have Church of Christ on our sign, and I have been steeped in the Church of Christ since birth, the one thing that I know is that the Church of Christ, we've done a good job of emphasizing baptism. But we don't need to stop short there. If we have a tendency to baptize and say, celebrate, we're good, we're done, well, that's not the complete picture, because in the next verse, Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So the process of discipling continues even after baptism to continue to teach so that these students, these new disciples, can continue to learn and then obey. And then Jesus ends, the Gospel of Matthew ends, Jesus ends this commissioning statement by saying, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of Matthew starts with the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, and it ends with Jesus saying, I am with you always in his continued presence in the Holy Spirit. So we slow down a little bit. We go through this great commission. We're talking about D squared. So what does this have to do? Well, let me point out to you that when we come to church on Sunday mornings, when you listen to a sermon, when you go to your Bible classes, we have a lingo. We have kind of a language that we use. 
As you notice, I kind of stumbled through the announcements a little bit ago because I'm, I'm trying to keep up with all the new hip words that we use. And imagine coming here, and this is your first time, and we're saying uh, Pine Tree Roots is meeting in the hub and Bridge 56 in the hub, and we have Jump Street, and we have the parlor room, and we start saying all these words, and you're new here, you're probably thinking, what? What is all that stuff? You figure it out as you go along, but we kind of have what some people would call insider language. We do that. Each church has its own special personality and characteristics. We, you kind of figure it out as you go along. I did. Moved here four years ago, and I quickly figured out what these different building names and group names meant. But when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to church language, sometimes we use words that are not used in everyday language And it helps to just kind of stop and define what some words mean. I remember many years ago as a youth minister, we were we went to a camp called Netz's Camp, and we had had this great week. It was one of those mountaintop experiences. And on the way home, we were on the church bus, and we stopped at a fast food restaurant. Go figure. bashing fast food mentality, and we stop at this fast food restaurant as a youth group, and there was a young girl, she's probably 14 or 15, who was standing at the door, and I could tell she was waiting on me. This was kind of her first week as a part of our church, a part of our youth group. She was what you would consider unchurched. She had not grown up going to church. She had very little background. So her main experience was this camp. She had been to a few youth group events before this, she stood at the door. She seemed nervous, and I said, Carol, what's going on? And she said, I, I want to talk to you about getting baptized. And I said, baptized? You mean baptized? She said, yeah, you know that thing when you become a Christian and they put you in the water. That was her understanding. of ba- She was calling it baptized, and that's what she knew. So I realized, okay, her heart is in the right place. We just probably needed to define and clarify a few things for her, and two days later, she was baptized into Christ. But I realized, you know, with having no background, she didn't understand what some of the language that we were using all week at that camp, she didn't have any sort of foundation for that. Or I think about another guy named Gabe. Uh, he was at a church that I was connected with, and he was in the uh, 20s and 30s college, young professionals class, and uh, the teacher was doing a month on hermeneutics. How many of you have ever studied hermeneutics? Okay, maybe some of you. More of you raised your hand about that than sharing the Great Commission. When okay, I don't. It's funny how we what we raise our hands about. But either way, the class is on hermeneutics. This guy named Gabe shows up to the class one day, and the teacher keeps mentioning hermeneutics. And finally, Gabe, who's who's a little different, and he's not shy, he raised his hand and he said, "Wait a minute." Who is this Herman guy that you keep talking about? And the teacher realized, like, I better back up and define what I mean by this. We can get lost sometimes in some of the church-type words that we use. So as Phil McKinney is the guide for us in the sermon series, he calls chapter 3 untangling discipleship. As we've looked at this great commission, which would be my philosophy of ministry, why I'm here it's important to maybe define a few words. I want to define four words for you as we wrap this thing up today that I think will be important for understanding our mission as a church, the Great Commission, and this whole sermon series. And one of those words is just simply a disciple. This is a bonus word. It means a follower. It means you, an apprentice, somebody who has attached themselves to Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is a student, a learner who wants to become like Jesus. 
But in our church language, we use words like discipleship. And when we say discipleship, here's a way to define it. It's the process of ever-increasing formation of Christ in our lives. So if you hear us say words like discipleship, this is what we're talking about. It's not like you ever arrive and then you're perfectly like Jesus, but we're on this journey of ever-increasing formation of Christ in our lives. And I would say that discipleship is not a ministry of the church. Discipleship is the ministry of the church. Everything that we're doing from children's ministry to youth ministry to our connect groups to Bible classes to what we're doing here on Sunday mornings or anything else that we do, discipleship is what we're all about. Everything that we teach, everything that we do from these fellowship events, discipleship. Well, another word that I've used, and I used a lot last week, is the word discipling. And you could define discipling as the responsibility of helping one another grow as disciples. Or another way of looking at it, if somebody's not a disciple yet, helping them to become a disciple. Last week I mentioned that there are two irrefutable truths. We are always being discipled by someone or something, and we are always discipling someone. Or maybe another word to use to help you understand that is influence. And I went heavy last week on how we are discipled by so many things, so many people in our lives, the culture. And I didn't spend a lot of time on the discipling others piece. But this is an important part of D-Square. This is an important part of our own mission is that to be a disciple, a growing disciple, that we need to be actively engaged in discipling others. So who are you discipling? And then two other words that help us understand this Great Commission especially. One word that I've used often in the last three weeks is this word, spiritual maturity. And you can define spiritual maturity as an ever-increasing ability to apply God's Word to life. Remember what Jesus says in verse 20 of Matthew 28. After He says to baptize, He says, teaching them to what? To obey everything that I have commanded you. This is the process of spiritual maturity. It's not just learning the teachings of Jesus, learning God's Word and having head knowledge, but to start applying it, to start living it out, so much so that at some point, living out the teachings of Jesus in your everyday life, obeying those teachings becomes second nature. That's when you're growing in spiritual maturity. And then one final definition is spiritual formation. A lot of these words may sound like they overlap, but basically spiritual formation is when you're being conformed uh, and transformed to the image of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now remember at the very end of verse 20, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. I believe what Jesus is referring to is his continuing presence through the Holy Spirit. So as we try to grow and disciple each other, and be intentional, and not just stumble into who is discipling and influencing us. As we draw near to God, He draws near to us. As we draw near to God, the Holy Spirit that is within us is doing the work. As Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, which I read from the Scripture reading, that it's God who gives the growth. It's the Holy Spirit who works within us. Let me read one more time this great commission. I'll just read verse 19 and 20. Keep these definitions in mind. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Maybe you can see in that as we reread discipleship, discipling, spiritual maturity, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, spiritual formation, the Holy Spirit will be with you, guiding you. We're always being discipled, and we're always discipling someone. So maybe the challenge to you today would just be to go and make disciples. Think about who in your life that you have influence over and make disciples out of them. There was a great evangelist named Dwight Moody who shared this story one time. He was preaching to, I guess, a large crowd one day, and he was talking about spreading the gospel, making disciples. And after the lesson was over, a lady came up to him and said, I disagree with you. I don't like the way that you evangelize. And he said, well, hey, I'm open to learning, so tell me how you evangelize. And she said, well, I don't. And he said, well, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't do it. And it makes me think about this Great Commission and the fact that making disciples is not reserved for ministers, missionaries, or elders. We are all called to be disciple makers. And I could spend 30 more minutes talking about the practical side of what it looks like to go out and find people, whether it's people that are already in your life or people that you're not aware of yet, and how it would look to begin a discipling relationship with them and move beyond just being a friend or an acquaintance. But maybe that would be for another place and another time. But hopefully you're just aware of the fact that we are all in this together and we are all disciple makers. So go out and make disciples. Think about what that means to your life. Think about some of these definitions as you discuss them with your connect groups today. And as we wrap this part up, if there's anybody that's sitting in the audience today is thinking, you know, I thought I was a follower of Jesus, but maybe I'm not because I've never been baptized into Christ. Well, if that's you, we would love to talk to you today We have a baptistry right here. We would love to help be a part of that and begin that journey. Or if you're struggling and you're thinking, you know what, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I don't know if the spiritual formation or the spiritual maturity is really taking place. We want to remind you each week that I'm available to you, but so are our shepherds. I'm looking at a few of them right now in the room. And one will be up front, but a few of our shepherds will be around the room. Some will be in the back. And if you're at a place in life where you're hurting or you're struggling and you need to meet with them and pray or be prayed over, take this opportunity to respond to that. You can come up front, but you could also do that privately. So we're going to invite Tony back up. I want to invite you to stand up, and we're going to continue to worship God in song. Let the weak say I am strong.